I've had two trips to Australia in four months, one in March and one in June, and usually I go about once a year. It's been wonderful to see my daughter and family in Melbourne after a gap of two and a half years. What's been so special is that my grandson now recognises me when we FaceTime. The opportunity to travel has been stymied by COVID-19 up until recently, and we Kiwis do love to travel far and near, and we have John going off very shortly, haven't we? <clears throat> Unfortunately for me, the Aussie family came down with COVID. I managed to get home before testing positive and then had to isolate for seven days, which is why I haven't been around for a while. It was only recently in the 19th century that people began travelling further afield than their villages. Travelling was a luxury only for the rich that the rich could afford. I'm a great fan of the author Ken Follett. Have you read his books Pillars of the Earth and World Without End? Anyone read them? Well, you're missing an absolute treat. They're set in 12th century England around the time when the cathedrals were being built. They give an excellent picture of life in those times when people hardly ever ventured out of their local area. And the first one, I think, was uh, about masons who were actually building the cathedrals. In Jesus' time, the Jews didn't travel far either. The major exception was to make the three to four days walk each year to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Compared to the travels made by Paul later, Jesus didn't venture far either, but he was constantly on the move. The most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem was through Samaria, but it was a route most Jews avoided because of the long-standing hostilities between the Jews and the Samaritans. The hostility between those two groups when the Jews returned from the exile. The Samaritans offered to collaborate with them on the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but the offer was rejected, causing long-lasting hostilities. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus specifically instructs disciples not to go to the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel. In Luke, however, there are several occasions when Jesus had positive interactions with Samaritans, such as the story of the Good Samaritan and the cleansing of the Samaritan leper. Luke tells us in today's reading that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew that the time for him to ascend to heaven was drawing near, and nothing was going to distract him from fulfilling his purpose and God's will. For Jesus, the whole purpose of his life was to make this last journey to Jerusalem at great cost, his very life. It would have been unusual for Jesus to take the direct route through Samaria, but by sending his messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival, he was extending a hand of friendship to people who were enemies. When his messengers were not welcomed, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven to burn them up. Instead, they received a strong rebuke from Jesus. This was not the time for judgment on Samaria, a territory specifically designated in Acts for mission. William Barclay, in his commentary on Luke, says, There is no passage in which Jesus so directly teaches the duty of tolerance as in this. 
And our tolerance must be based not on indifference, but on love. We ought to be tolerant not because we could not care less, but because we look at the other person with eyes of love. There are times in our lives when we're facing a demanding situation, and all we want to do is bury our head under the covers and hide, rather than face it. But we know we can't do that. We know we must face whatever situation, situation is and deal with it. When you find yourself in, the, in that place, you aren't much in the mood for foolishness. The things that seemed serious a week earlier seem trivial once your face is set toward that demanding situation. You aren't in the mood for jokes and you aren't inclined to suffer fools gladly. Anyone who would distract you had better get out of the way. That could well be how Jesus was feeling on his walk to Jerusalem when a would-be disciple fell in alongside him and said, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus responded, The foxes have holes and, the bir and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I've always wondered about that would-be disciple. Why did he offer to follow Jesus? Did he have visions of glory? Was he trying to get on the ground floor with an up-and-coming prophet? He was obviously put off by Jesus' comment that he was homeless. It was not the sort of life he had envisaged for himself. Jesus invited another would-be disciple to join him. Follow me, he said. But the response given by this disciple was, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. A good excuse, we might think, but not for Jesus. Let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That sounds callous, doesn't it? But biblical scholars who studied the customs of the day concluded that this man was asking permission to stay with his parents until they died. In Jewish culture at that time, the obligation to bury one's father or mother was regarded as the most holy and binding duty of a son. For this would-be disciple, he would answer Jesus' call after the death of his parents. But Jesus didn't have that kind of time. He didn't have many days left. And proclaiming the kingdom of God was the priority. Another would-be disciple said, I want to follow you, Lord, but first allow me to say goodbye to those who are at my house. Jesus responded, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I recently saw on Seven Sharp um, an item about a man who was off overseas to compete in a ploughing competition. He'd won several prestigious competitions in the past. And from what he showed us and what he said, it was obvious that anyone ploughing cannot look back and keep in a straight line at the same time. What is needed is complete focus and commitment on the job at hand. Jesus' response to the third would-be disciple sounds reasonable, but again in that culture, the young man needed his parents' permission to leave them. He knew his father would refuse his request, and so wasn't seriously committed about following Jesus. And that's the point. If you're going to follow Jesus, he wants you to be seriously committed. 
In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, he put it this way. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus, whose face was resolutely set on Jerusalem, wants disciples who are resolutely set on faithful, committed discipleship. That sounds like a lot to ask, and it is, and there are many times in our lives when we fail miserably. Most of us would say family is what is most important to us, and I can identify with that having just spent special times with my family in Melbourne, and that's a desirable choice. But what Jesus said to the three would-be disciples along the road is that there is something even more important than family, and that is a life dedicated to God, a determination to go where God leads us. For Luke, obedience to God's call is one of the key images of what it means to be Christian. The question that comes home to us with renewed force is, where is Jesus asking us to travel, not yesterday, but tomorrow? Are we ready to follow him wherever he goes? Francois Mariac was a French novelist who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. During the First World War, he served as a hospital orderly, a job in which he was exposed day by day to the horrors of war. During the Second World War, he was forced into hiding when he protested Nazi tyranny. He opposed colonialism and the use of torture, stands that cost him friends and gained him enemies. But he explained it this way. He said, If a man says, Lord, I give you everything, and in a tone that really commits him, his friends can expect or fear anything from him save that he will turn his life into a farce. What a wise man. Jesus calls us to put God first in our lives. <clears throat> he doesn't promise easy lives, but he does promise blessed lives, lives that are anything but a farce. So let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to us, to you and me here and now, whatever situation we find ourselves in. Let us open our hearts to giving our lives to Jesus. Let us set our faces toward the place that he leads us, knowing that God will bless us. And I chose the same prayer that we've just prayed for the collect, but I'm going to say it again. Sovereign Lord, we have no good apart from you. Gladden our hearts in following your radical call, so that in your presence we may find the fullness of joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is alive with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.